Sergei Sudev is a student in the country of Moldova. One day in October 2008, Sergei heard a knock on the door. A messenger was there with some good news and some bad news. The bad news, his uncle in Germany had died. But there was also some good news. The uncle he hadn't seen in 10 years left Sergei an inheritance of 950 million euros. Nearly 1.3 billion dollars. <laughs> A sum of money equal to the budget of the entire country of Moldova. Overnight, Sergei Sudev became one of Moldova's richest citizens. When the news first reached him, supposedly Sergei remarked, Is this a joke? And when we read the book of Ephesians, when we read of the inheritance that we've received in Christ Jesus, we're too prompted to ask, is this a joke? The answer to that question is no. To the contrary, this is the Word of God. As a believer in Jesus, you have hit the jackpot. You have found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You have struck the mother load. In Christ Jesus, you and I are spiritual tycoons. It's all because Jesus died for us and He left Behind an inheritance. Paul lists our spiritual blessings in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. He begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now I'm glad this letter was delivered to the Ephesians by a courier. For if it had been sent through the post office, it probably would have caused confusion. For what do you do with a letter that has two addresses? I mean, Paul writes to believers who are on the one hand in Ephesus, but at the same time, they're in Christ Jesus. These believers were living simultaneously in two locations. Physically, they were in Ephesus, but spiritually, they were in Christ. And did you know, we also live in two locations. If Paul were writing to us today, it would read, To the saints who are in Lilburn and faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul greets these Ephesians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When my wife used to send me love letters... She would seal the envelope and she would squirt a little perfume on the flap. And I could tell by its scent that this was a love letter. This, though, is the problem with email. Email don't smell. <laughs> well, here Paul squirts on his letters a special fragrance. They always have the smell of grace and peace. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, here it is, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, wherever you're stationed physically, you'll find that your location will be limiting. I mean, in Lilburn, we can't enjoy the beach. Not a lot of snow skiing or snowboarding in Lilburn, is there? 
Physically, we're limited by our location, but not so spiritually. For in Christ, we have access to every spiritual blessing. Can you imagine? In Christ Jesus, understand, our lives butt up to another world. We're connected by the Holy Spirit to a spiritual realm where we can draw from it love and power and peace and the presence and the joy and the patience of Almighty God. This means the key to living the Christian life and overcoming sin is to avoid getting landlocked, of getting tied down to what's tangible and temporal. We need to see ourselves not just in Lilburn, but in Christ Jesus. We need to stay focused on who we are and what we have as a child of God. If we know who we are, we'll live like it. If we know what we have, we'll use it. And for the rest of the chapter now, Paul is going to take us on a tour. He's going to get us acquainted with our blessings in Christ. Our tour begins in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. The first blessing in the benefit package is that we've been chosen. Did you know that? Among the hordes of humanity who have walked this planet, God has picked you to be His child. Did you know that? This means that you didn't just wander into the family of God. This means that your conversion was no fluke. This means that God had his eye on you before the foundation of the world. Do you know what this means? Here's a mind blower for you. It means that when Jesus went to the cross, he had you in mind. Wow. He continues, verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. It's true, the Bible teaches that our salvation depends on us choosing God. But the Bible also tells us that when we do, we discover that in reality, God first chose us. It's been said that when we walk through the gates of heaven, we'll look up and we'll read the banner over the pearly gates that says, Whosoever will may come. And then after we've entered in, we'll turn around and look at the other side and see the words chosen before the foundation of the world. And as Paul puts it, we've been predestined for adoption. If you're in Christ, God has adopted you as his son or his daughter. And you know the adopted child has one big blessing. You know what it is? He or she always knows that they're wanted. An adopted child understands that he's no accident, that she's no mistake, that we weren't forced on a reluctant God. When you're adopted, you know you're cherished. And when God adopts us, we know that He loves us and cares for us. And He sacrificed to make us His own. And here's why God adopted us. It was according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. God chose you to show off His grace. I mean, when you were saved, everyone knew that there's no way that a bozo like you deserves such favor. There's no way. There's no way you did anything to earn it. It was given freely. He chose you to show off his grace. You and I are proof that our God is full of grace and mercy. And he continues, by his grace, he has made us accepted 
in the beloved. There is no sweeter emotion on earth than to feel accepted. Don't you like that when you're, you know you're accepted? When you've been granted full membership? And in Christ, we have been accepted into the most exclusive club in the universe, the family of God. Also, in Him, or in Christ, we have redemption. The word redemption means to buy back. I love the version of the story of the gingerbread man, where the little gingerbread man, as soon as he came off of the cookie sheet, he began taunting the grandma who'd baked him. He shouted, run, run, as fast as you can, but nobody can catch a gingerbread man. And off he ran with grandma at his heels. She chased him through the city streets until she found him trying to hide in the window of the bakery. She walked in and she grabbed the gingerbread man off of the counter. And as she was leaving, the baker said, ma'am, that'll be 10 cents. Well, the grandma, rather than argue, she pulled out a dime and she handed it to the baker. And as she took the gingerbread man home, she held him close to her chest and she whispered, first I made you, then I bought you. And now you're really mine. And if you listen closely tonight, this is what you'll hear the Holy Spirit whisper to you. First I made you, but I've also bought you. And now you're really mine. And notice how we've been redeemed. Through His blood. This is the purchase price. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Joe Kirkowski was America's blood donor champion. Ever heard of Joe? Apparently, when he was young, Joe lost an arm. When he was six years old, he lost his arm. So when World War II broke out, he was rejected for military service. But that didn't stop Joe from serving his country. Joe decided to give blood. And throughout his lifetime, Joe Kirkowski gave a total of 31 gallons of blood, saving the lives of countless people. Remember, the human body only holds 10 to 12 pints of blood. So Joe gave all that he had more than 20 times. Joe made the comment, giving blood makes you feel like you're contributing life itself. There's no more precious a gift than life. Money can't buy the joy of giving blood to help someone who needs it. And those words could have been taken straight out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus. For only one person has given more blood and experience greater joy from doing so than Joe Kirkowski, and that's Jesus Christ. Millions now have received life and have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus. As the hymn puts it, would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you? Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonder-working power in the blood. It's the blood of Jesus that wins those victories for us. And then Paul tells us that God redeemed us for the forgiveness of sins. You see, he purchased our rights, not to enslave us and make us miserable, but to set us free. It's one thing to purchase a slave to set them free. That's what Jesus did. God redeems us to forgive us. There's a company in Michigan, I think it's Grand Rapids, that posted a notice on its bulletin board. It read, To err is human, to forgive is company policy. And forgiveness is company policy in the kingdom of God. Our God is all about forgiveness. 
In fact, the end of verse 6 tells us the extent of his forgiveness. It's according to the riches of his grace. Now, now when I write a check, I sometimes get depressed. For my bill exceeds my balance. That's a problem, isn't it, when you're writing checks? But what if I'm Bill Gates Jr.? And my dad is paying the, the debts. I could breathe a sigh of relief, couldn't I? For Bill has more than enough money to cover my bills. We need to realize that if we're in Christ Jesus, God is our Father. And He is the one who's paying our debts. And He's writing checks out of the riches of His grace. Do you understand what that means? This is why there's more than enough to cover you and cover me. Because he's writing it out of the riches of his grace. You need to trust him. He forgives us according to his riches, not our merit. Verse 8 tells us that God made his grace to abound, or literally to spill over toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. In other words, this lavish grace was God's idea and no one else's. It pleased him to be so kind. You should know God's heart for you. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, or literally, when the time was right, when the age was over, then he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. All history is headed for a grand climax. Everything in the universe is going to mesh together in Christ Jesus. The redeemed of all the ages will live forever together with our Lord Jesus. Verse 11, in him. And I hope this is sinking in. Notice this again. Where are our blessings found? In Lilburn, you might be poor. Some of you are. But in Christ Jesus, you're rich. Where are your blessings found? In Him. In Christ. In Him also, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Sergei Sudev had a rich uncle, and you have a rich father. And it's God's will to write you into His will. Reminds me of the heirs who were just a little too eager to see the old man die and inherit his fortune. So after his death, they were sitting at the table when the lawyer opened up the last will and testament and read, I, John Jones, being of sound mind and body, spent it all. <laughs> Don't worry, that's not going to happen to you. God has for you an inheritance. His blessings are both for now and for eternity. He says that we who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Note how the Ephesians were saved. They trusted. That's how they were saved. And 2,000 years later, do you realize, people are still being saved the exact same way. They trust. They trust in Jesus Christ. People are still saved through grace, by faith, in Christ, for His glory. In whom also, having believed, 
You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now in the ancient world, a seal was a mark of ownership. A merchant would plant his ring into the hot wax and the impression that it left behind was that of the merchant's mark. Thus it denoted what belonged to him. And likewise, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is God's mark of ownership on my life and on your life. How do you know you belong to God? Look for the seal. Look for His stamp of approval. Look for the Holy Spirit working in your life. It's the Spirit's power and influence in us that proves we belong to God. How can we consider ourselves in Christ if we're not affected by the Spirit of Christ? You see, the Holy Spirit is a big deal. Verse 14 tells us that He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. The Greek word translated guarantee here refers to a purchaser's earnest money. The Holy Spirit is the earnest money. He's God's down payment. He is the foretaste of the joys of heaven. But this word erabon has another meaning as well. You know, today in Greece, it's the word used for an engagement ring. In ancient times, it referred to the dowry or the bridal price. A dowry was a financial pledge given by a man to the family of the bride-to-be. It proved that his intentions toward her were to marry her and to support the daughter, that these intentions were genuine. This makes for a beautiful picture when applied to Jesus in the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of God is our engagement ring. He's our promise from Jesus, our assurance that Jesus intends to return and take us as his bride. Holy Spirit's a big deal. You and I have been given tremendous blessings in Christ Jesus. But here's my question for you tonight. Are you accessing those riches? Henrietta Green, or Hetty as she was called, has the reputation of being the world's greatest miser. When Hetty died, her estate valued $95 million. And yet she was so tight with her money that she ate cold oatmeal each morning because she didn't want to pay for the heat, uh, pay for the electricity to heat up her stove. Her son was forced to have her infected leg amputated because she kept putting off treatment to search for a free medical clinic. This woman was stingy. But I'm afraid the church is full of heady greens today. Folks who don't understand, who don't utilize the blessings that they've been given. They're rich in Christ Jesus and yet they live as paupers. So what if there's wealth in our bank account if we never draw it out? There are Christians who are spiritually starving while their pantries are stocked to the brim. And in the rest of this chapter, Paul prays a prayer designed to help us to help these believers take advantage of their blessings. Verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, and notice those two things always go together, faith in Jesus and love for his people. Did you know that? If you have faith in Jesus, you'll love God's people. E. Stanley Jones describes the change that took place in him the day he knelt to receive Christ into his life. He recalls, when I was converted and rose from my knees, the first thing I wanted to do was put my arms around the world. Faith in Jesus always produces love for people. 
And when Paul remembered their faith in Jesus and their love for each other, he prayed for them. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you. And here's the first thing he prays. May give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, the scriptures convey to, convey to us the truth about God. But that's where a lot of Christians stop. Understand, guys, knowing about God and actually knowing God are not the same. You can know about me, but have never met me. God wants us to sense His presence. To not just know about Him, but to know Him personally. To be awed by His glory. To be warmed at the fires of His love. He wants us to encounter Him not only academically in Bible study, but He wants us to know Him spiritually by opening up our hearts to Him. There, there's an old hymn that reads, Beyond the sacred page I seek Thee, Lord. My spirit pants for Thee, O living Word. Notice that, beyond the sacred page. Paul prays here that God will reveal himself personally and intimately to these Ephesians, that he would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And then he prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Not only that we'll know the truths of Scripture, but that we'll have insight into how to apply them. I mean, think about it. How many people saw apples drop off trees before Isaac Newton deduced from it the law of gravity? Charles Watts wasn't the first person to watch steam, a steam kettle boil. But from that idea, he invented the steam engine. I've seen apples fall from trees and steam rise from a kettle, but that's all I saw. My understanding lacked the eyes to apply that truth in beneficial ways. You see, here's where we can't afford to be dense. We, we can't just read these things in Scripture, but we have to see the blessings of God around us. I've heard it said, every bush is a burning bush. God reveals Himself everywhere. Every bush is a burning bush, but we just sit around picking blackberries. We don't see the bush on fire. We don't see the presence of God around us. And that's why Paul says, I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you'd see God in these things and how it applies to your life. And next, Paul lists three truths that we need to apply to our lives. He says that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ Jesus when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places? Notice Paul asked God to help us apply three things. The hope of our calling. The riches of His inheritance in the saints. And the exceeding greatness of His power. First, Paul wants you to know the hope of your calling. Did you know you're a child of God? You're an heir of the king. That makes you somebody. You should live like it. Hey, what better, what better boost to a sagging self-worth than to know you're a child of God? So what if you miss the salesman of the year? 
Or so what if Susie didn't invite you to her pampered chef party? Wake up, man. You're a child of Almighty God. Do you realize that? We need to know the hope of our calling. We'll live differently when we do. Second, realize that God considers you His inheritance. Notice, His inheritance in the saints. Now, we've mentioned that God gives us an inheritance. But God, too, has an inheritance. God has an endowment for which He's waiting patiently and eagerly. And guess what that inheritance is? Hold on to your hat. God's inheritance is you. You're His inheritance. You are what God longs for and is waiting on. To spend eternity with you. Imagine you are cherished by the one person who really matters. I'm telling you, you're somebody. And then third, he prays that you realize the greatness of his power. According to Paul, the same power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to heaven is available to you and he's available to me. This is why we should acknowledge our weakness And hold up our cup under the spigot until God fills it to overflowing. And if we hold it up, He will. In verse 21, Paul tells us that Jesus has been exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion. He's above the ranks of men and angels. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Apparently, Jesus is the king of the jungle. Have you heard that before? He rules the universe for time and for eternity. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now Jesus has authority over nations and over men and over angels and over time and over eternity. Thus, Let's never forget he also has authority over this church. This church isn't run by the pastor or the elders or the deacons or even the members. We too are under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's a great chapter, wasn't it? Chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is a rags to riches story and guess what? The main character is you. It describes how you grew up on the wrong side of the spiritual tracks. But in Christ, you've overcome impossible odds to gain a glorious future. The story begins. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice our problem is not just that we were maladjusted. Or that we had a few idiosyncrasies. Or that we were just immature. Or that we were even sick. No, before you came to Jesus, friend, you were dead as a doorknob. That was your problem. You see, death in essence is separation. Physical death occurs when the spirit leaves the body. Spiritual death is the state of the spirit being separated from God. Spiritually speaking, we all come into this world stillborn. We're born dead. Since we all inherited that sin nature of the first man, Adam, we're born in sin and thus isolated from God from the very start. We're isolated from the life of God. And understand the characteristics of dead people. It was true of you before you came to Jesus. First, dead people are unconscious. It's true. Go to the funeral home, check them all out. They're all unconscious. 
Not a lot of brainwaves going on there. They're unaware of what's going on around them. I mean, a corpse in the funeral home has no idea who comes to see him. They're not really hearing the conversation in front of them. Probably glad. They're probably glad of that. Likewise, those who are spiritually dead are oblivious to what's going on in Christ. They're not aware of the work of the Holy Spirit around them. God may be at work. He may even be speaking to them. But dead people don't realize it. They're unconscious. Second, dead people are inactive. Spend a little time around a dead guy and you'll realize he's boring, man. Dead people are no fun at all. They're inactive. In fact, the conversation is usually stiff when you're around a dead guy. People who are dead spiritually, they lack enthusiasm. They lack, they lack energy to serve. They're inactive. And then third, dead people decay. There's an old joke. Have you heard about the musical composer who died? Now he spends all his time decomposing. Yeah, yeah. that's a groaner. There are no degrees to death. Understand that. You're either dead or you're alive. You're not half dead and half alive. You're either dead or alive. And likewise, you're either in Christ or you're not. You're a saint or you're an ain't. The social deviant and the sophisticated socialite are different on the outside, but inside, they're equally dead. The only difference is their rate of decay. Some folks are more rotten than others, but everyone without Christ is dead. Now, Paul continues his description of us before we came to Christ. In which you also walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Dead in sin, cut off from God, we fell under the influence of Satan in this wicked world. Among whom also... We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Dead to God, sinners by nature. We sought fulfillment in sensual pleasure, in material gain. We were looking for love in all the wrong places. See, when you're dead to spiritual things, your only recourse is to look for Him in the temporal and in the tangible. Understand, don't make the age-old mistake of trying to meet a spiritual need with a physical thing or a physical thrill. It never works. And this is what happens to people who are without Christ. They try that. They try to meet that spiritual longing. They try to fill that spiritual emptiness with some physical thing or physical relationship or, or physical pleasure. And yet all our attempts to do so only lead to more and more and more emptiness. Verse 4. And I love these first two words. The first two words of verse 4 are some of the most comforting in all of the Bible. But God. But God. I mean, to catch the essence of it, just turn the words around. God butted in. Aren't you glad? He saw that you were parting on a sinking ship. He could have allowed you to just to have your own way and stumble into eternity without him. But God, he crashed the party. Oh, thank you, Lord. He loves us enough to intervene in our misery. 
God sent Jesus and he offers to save us. But God may be the two most important words in all of the Bible. But God. Who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Notice, God is rich in what we need most. Mercy. (laughs) I'm so glad of that. You can be rich in something you don't really need. But God was rich in what we valued most. It's been said, God's throne isn't made of marble, but of mercy. In fact, God's throne in the Old Testament is called the mercy seat. Imagine His throne, the place from where He rules, is the very place that wayward people come to find forgiveness and hope. God's throne is a mercy seat. This tells us a lot about God. An old man was on his deathbed when a relative in the room whispered, He's going to receive his reward. The dying man, he heard it, and he mustered enough energy to correct him. He said, no, I'm going to receive mercy. So am I. Only the fool wants what's coming to him, what he deserves. I want God's mercy. Hey, long before we ever thought of God or took any initiative toward Him, He loved us, and He did the work necessary to save us. And Paul explains that even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. I like how the old King James puts it. God quickened us. He made us alive together, or He quickened us. He jump-started us with a spiritual spark of life. I mean, God was like a thief hot-wiring a car. God took hold of God's wire. And then He took hold of our wire. And he hit them together. And he created a connection. He arced a spark. He created life in you when you were saved. God planted his Holy Spirit into your hollow spirit. That's why fear not that your life will come to an end, but rather that it will never have a beginning. Life just begins for us when he makes us alive. When he quickens us. Real life only starts when we become alive to God. And God, not only did He quicken us, He didn't didn't just make us alive. He didn't stop there. But He has also raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow. Air Force One is the President's Private 747. Did you know that Air Force One has a protective thermonuclear shield? It has 19 TV monitors on board. It has 85 telephones. It has seven laboratories. The president has his own stateroom, dressing room, office, dining room, and all the pretzels, peanuts, and Biscoff cookies he could eat. In the event of an all-out nuclear war on earth, the president can soar off in Air Force One and he can sit comfortably above it all. He can make decisions with perspective. And likewise, God has seated us in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, all you have to do is, is rise above it. In Christ Jesus, you have all that you need to sit comfortably and peacefully, even when all hell breaks loose in the situations around you. 
For you have an eternal perspective from which you can make the right calls here on earth. Ironically, the first step in the Christian life is not a step at all. It's a sit. The first step is to learn to sit. Before we do anything for God, we need to see what God has done for us. That He's raised us up together with Christ. That He's made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, before you stand for God, you've got to learn to sit with God. Before you can impact your circumstances, you need to rest in the midst of those circumstances. Spiritually speaking, we can all get into our Air Force One and we can, we can rest in His Spirit and rest in our faith and we can rely totally on God and on His blessings. Verse 7. And I love verse 7 because it tells us what we're going to be doing in heaven for all eternity. Have you ever wondered what we'll be doing in heaven? Here's a list I found. It's the top 10 reasons to look forward to heaven. You ready? Here's the top 10 reasons to look forward to heaven. Number 10, you can begin the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art here. That'd be good. Number 9, you can get an answer to the question, why? Number 8, in heaven, touched by an angel isn't just a television rerun. Number 7, Soul music for eternity. Number six, real golden arches. Number five, a great view. It'll be a great view, all right. Number four, no pain, no gain becomes no pain, no pain. Number three, when you say, oh God, you'll hear, what? Number two, mansions with no mortgages. Oh, that'd be great. It's paid for, man. Here it is. Here's the keys. And then number one, the number one reason to look forward to heaven, totally fat-free. Wow. Here in verse 7, Paul explains what we'll really be doing in heaven for all eternity. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. Jesus will just be peeling back layer after layer of His amazing grace and love for us. We'll be learning of His kindness toward us. Here's a quote that's funny but true. Millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Saturday afternoon. Eternity is a lot of time, isn't it? Eternity is going to be a lot of time on your hands. Will you grow bored? How will you spend forever? Well, there's only one thing that will keep us mesmerized for all eternity. And that's the sacrifice of Jesus and the extravagance of His grace. And that's what we'll be exploring for eon after eon after eon. Several years ago, Kathy and I, we took our kids to the nursing home to minister to the old folks. And on the way home, we were discussing how God will give out rewards in eternity. Well, it's no surprise that Zach turned into a pastor because he's always been the thinker of the kids. And even at seven years old, he was this little theologian. And so on the way home, Zach asked this question. He said, Dad, if we're going to have everything in heaven, what's left for God to give us as a reward? <laughs> That's a pretty good question. Caused Dad to start scratching his head. I was groping for an answer. 
But my silence was broken by Natalie. She answered for me in a way that was far better than I could have mustered. She, she turned in her little voice. She said, Zach, God will reward us with a hug and a kiss. Could there be a greater reward than a hug and a kiss from God? Could there be? God will spend the ages to come showing us the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He will fill up our eternity with hugs and kisses. And trust me, each day will be more thrilling than the last. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What prompted God to butt into our lives and save us? We'll make no mistake about it. It had nothing to do with our performance or our goodness or our righteous deeds or our rituals or our noble heritage. Paul declares, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It was all prompted by grace. It flows from the heart of God, not from your performance. It's a gift you receive. And then Paul adds, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, if it were eight wages you earned, then you could brag about it. You could take all the credit. Rather than abolish your pride, salvation would play right into pride's hands. God is smarter than that. For me to be saved, I have to humble myself. I have to get rid of my pride. I have to admit I'm a slacker. All salvation costs any of us is our pride. It's by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. And then verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's an old saying, Good works never make us fit for God, but God does make us fit for good works. You know, like buying a used car, God accepts you as is. But here's the good news. He doesn't leave you that way. He works to refurbish us. He goes to work turning our ugliness into beauty. Paul says we are his workmanship. That's a beautiful word, workmanship. It's actually the Greek word poema, from which we get our word poem. In other words, we are God's special work of art Our lives are the canvas on which He paints. We're the scroll on which God writes. When we come to Christ, we become the medium through which the artist of the universe expresses His thoughts and His intents and His heart. Verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. In other words, Gentiles were distinguished from Jews by an external mark called circumcision. The Jews wore it. The Gentiles didn't. It highlighted that we were two separate peoples. It was a line of demarcation. But now that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, since the promise of salvation was given to Israel... And since Gentiles were alienated from Jews, the Gentiles had no hope. They they were aliens. They were strangers. 
Not because God wasn't willing to be gracious to the Gentiles, but outside Israel, the Gentiles had limited access to God. In that sense, race was a barrier to grace. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, understand, Jews and Gentiles were far apart. We're talking circumcision and uncircumcision. That's a long way apart. I mean, Jews and Gentiles were as far apart as the North American hunting club and PETA. Jews were religious and principled. Gentiles were secular and pragmatic. The two groups had very little in common. But when a Jew and a Gentile receives the free gift of Jesus, all of a sudden that vast difference between them shrinks. Zoom! It's covered. The distinctions are suddenly abolished. Instantly, they're standing on common ground. They are brought near, Paul says, or literally compressed together. How can this happen? Only one way. It's through the blood of Jesus that people are united who had nothing in common before. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus Christ. To bring Jew and Gentile together instantly through the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, verse 14, For He Himself is our peace. Notice Jesus doesn't give us peace. He Himself is our peace. It's His presence. It's knowing He's near. It's holding His hand. That's what brings about a sense of peace in our lives. That's what brings us rest and security. Hey, don't pray for God's peace. Pray that God will reveal the presence of Jesus in your life. That's what you should pray. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity or the source of friction and hostility. That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It was the law of Moses. It was the Mosaic law, the legalism of the Jews. This was the culprit that kept Jews and Gentiles separated. Those customs, those rituals created a different culture for Jews that made it difficult for them to relate to Gentiles and it made it difficult for Gentiles to relate to Jews. You have the same problem when you go to Israel today. The myriad of distinctions created by the law also produced a pride in the Jews and a judgmental spirit. But you see, here's what Paul's saying. By replacing the law with Jesus, God tore down the reason for our division. The law belonged to the Jews, but Jesus belongs to everybody. It belongs to Jews. He belongs to Jews and Gentiles. The law was exclusive to Jews, but Jesus is inclusive. And likewise for us, some of us are male, some female. Some of us are white, some black, some rich, some poor, some married, some single, some boomers, some generation Xers, some like loud music, some like soft music, some like hot chili, some like sweet chili. I, I mean, we too are as different as Jews and Gentiles. And given the chance, we'll find reasons to divide and to separate and polarize. It is Jesus that makes us one. He is the commonality that's greater than all our differences. He is our peace. And He brings us together. 
He, he creates in himself, notice this, he creates in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He doesn't want us divided any longer. He died to make us one, to unite us into one new person in Christ Jesus. You see, we've missed the point if we separate ourselves into various subcultures, even Christian subcultures, young Christians and old Christians, black Christians and white Christians, male Christians and female Christians. No, the only division that's allowed to stand is in Christ and apart from Christ. Verse 16, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. We all come through the same door in Christ We're joined at the cross. You see, in a spiritual sense, cut any of us, and when we bleed, it won't be my blood or your blood, but it'll be Christ's blood. That's what binds us together and makes us one. And He came and He preached to you who were afar off and to those who were near. The gospel is one size fits all. It's every man's answer, Jew and Gentile, hipster and button-down, redneck and urban. The gospel's one size fits all. Paul says the gospel came, it preached to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He says, for through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. The same Spirit dwells in all of us. There's not a Holy Spirit for honkies and a Holy Spirit for homies. It's the same Spirit in us all. The same Holy Spirit. He says, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Once we were strangers. I mean, we lacked a passport to God's blessings. We were on the outside looking in, but now we've been adopted into the family. In fact, we've been born again. we got double credentials. We're adopted and born into the family. And Jesus is building His house, His church. We're told in verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles and prophets played a special role in the early church. They established foundational doctrine and practice. But Jesus is and will always be the cornerstone. He is the one load-bearing rock on which everything else rests. Many churches learn the hard way. You remove Him. And it all crumbles. And in Christ, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And today Jesus continues to build His church. Each of us, you, me, all of us, we're planks in God's house Notice these last four verses here. The church is depicted in four ways. As a nation, as a household, as a building, and as a temple. That makes us one race and one family and one structure built with strong underpinnings. And we're one temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was God's dwelling place on the earth. Today, God's Spirit hangs out in His church. Hey, wouldn't it be cool if Calvary Chapel got the reputation in this community that we're the place where you can find God? 